Hi, and welcome to the Brewery FM podcast, hosted by Scott Hogue and Dan Usher. Just two techies separated by a pint of beer, talking cloud, the Oxford English Dictionary, and technology. I'm Scott Hogue, and this is episode 21, recorded on 25 June 2015. So Scott, what are you drinking tonight? I'm going old school, and that's old school with an E. Interesting. And what uh, what brand of old school is that? This is a dog fish head ale. It has a picture of a shark on it. And I can tell that's a shark because I used to live in Australia. I don't anymore, but uh, yeah, no. dog fish head. It is a barley wine style ale brewed with Figs and dates. Sounds uh, sounds pretty decent. I've got a 120-minute IPA in my hands. Uh, I'm trying to find on the bottle when it says it was bottled. It looks like it was bottled last September 17th. It, looks, it ages well, so say the bottle label. Uh, you know, stuff sits in your fridge long enough. You have to consume it. It is what it is. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree with you. All right, so show notes. We try week to week to diligently publish all this stuff out there and uh, make it available for your listening pleasure or viewing pleasure or website pleasure, whatever it may be. Uh, So we have a nice website at brewery.fm, and that has all of the notes from every show, hence show notes. and That's out on the internet. You can Google and find it. Pretty easy. Uh, And... We publish all the links out there, and we also maintain a couple of social media profiles. So we have a Facebook page uh, at Brewery FM. Uh, we maintain a Twitter handle at Brewery FM, where we tend to banter back and forth and uh, generally harass our listeners and put things through, like all you know, six or seven of you that may be out there. Yeah, all, all six or seven. I, I won't argue with you on that. Um... So, how do I get there? What's the the pattern or the practice? Uh, Patterns and practices. We love those things. So, we publish everything, again, to the blog at brewery.fm. And uh, we have a little bit of a short URL thing going on. So, uh, if you want to consume something, you go to the pub. So, you would go to pub.brewery.fm. And then this is episode 21. Holy 21 is in, we're old enough to drink. Uh, while we podcast. So, uh, yeah, so you would go to pub.brewery.fm slash brewery021. And you, you would find the show notes for episode 21. And if you wanted to find the show notes for a back episode, you could just put in that episode number. If you wanted to find the show notes for a forward-looking episode, I don't live in the future anymore, so that is no longer possible. Uh, you know, some folks have pinged us for feedback or whatnot and you know if you do uh if you do give us a rating or review on itunes we will send you a lovely gorgeous uh ninja cat riding a unicorn that's fire breathing that uh, is waving the microsoft flag that is a sticker of that that is not an actual unicorn because we all know you really can't find unicorns so that being said um if you do have feedback please leave it for us over on itunes we'd love your feedback it would be really really helpful yeah, that stuff goes a long way towards helping us out in yeah. general. Uh, and, I mean, and it's and it's always very much appreciated. 
The good, the bad, the ugly. I'll take it. So, from a from a follow up uh, aspect, apparently I say the word perspective too much, so I'm going to start using aspect all the time. Um, we uh, we kind of talked back and forth last week about Link and the back end for Link being uh, changed with Skype for Business and kind of the same deal with the the Skype back end, um, how it was replacing the live messenger back end. But it, it seems like uh, found a couple articles out there that were actually saying the Skype UI on the front side was staying the same, but the actual like back end for Skype commercial was making use of live messenger. Yeah, so there's a couple things. Uh, the first thing is the epic failure on my part, and that's totally that. understandable. I have white hair. It's no longer even gray, so I'm really old, and I'm losing my mind. Um, so, you know, one of the things we had was uh, this kind of collapse of Skype into, or collapse of, yeah, collapse of Skype into the Link Federation architecture, uh, which is a little bit different than just saying we're going to tear down Skype and, and do a bunch of other things. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I was wrong and get to... Wait, 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 you were wrong? Not as wrong as you always are. But, oh, well, yeah. okay. Let's, let's just be clear. I'm, I'm only wrong when you're not right. Um, so, <laughs> uh, yeah, so, you know, there, there was that piece. And then we also had the uh, live messenger bit come into play, which is kind of interesting because Microsoft's been playing around with identity on that side of things and everything else. Uh, and kind of how after Microsoft's acquisition of Skype, uh, they went through and started to leverage some of that back end and get away from some of the peer-to-peer. Hmm. Um, so recently I was, uh, you know, working on a project and, uh, it's an open source project with a couple friends and one of the guys said, Hey, I just don't have as much time as I'd like to have for this anymore. Um, you guys can keep working on it. Uh, I'll just, you know, remain the owner of it, but I'm not going to be able to contribute. So we all kind of scratched our heads and we said, you know what, why don't we just, we change the account owner and we'll go from there. And the individual said, Hey, that sounds like a great idea. We'll go ahead and switch out the account owner. Um, so we did, but, uh, we realized, unfortunately, that everything was still tied to his Azure Active Directory. And yeah, so if you're using Visual Studio Online, uh, you probably have come across kind of the problem of, uh, you know, somebody leaves your company or leaves like the project or something, and you need to transition things around. But because the way it works on the back end, it still ties back to that Azure Active Directory that happened to be whoever created it. So very similar to like any other uh, subscription. Um, anytime you want to move resources from one subscription to another, probably they published something in that default directory that was the original owner. Um, so you end up with kind of this this technical debt of trying to move things back around um, after the fact, and it's it's messy. So so re- really, we're talking about a bunch of things, right? Because we're yeah. talking about Visual Studio Online. And it's integration with Azure Active Directory. And then we've got this whole, hey, Dan, I'd like to help you out, help out with your project too. And I have an MSDN account. So let's go ahead and add my Microsoft account over to your Visual Studio Online project. And 
what does that do and what happens and who actually owns the resources within it, right? This is kind of the, uh, the, the struggle that you're going with and pushing things through. But if it's an open source community project, don't we all own it? <laughs> Not if it's in Visual Studio, no. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, that is the struggle. It's the who owns the code, who's the manager of it, who's, who has access to it. When someone drops off, maybe if we use GitHub, maybe? Does that solve our problem? Uh, GitHub's an option for you, right? It, it all depends on how you manage and push things through. So uh, VSO repositories tend to be pretty private, kind of locked down and, and closed off. There's no way to go and just browse Visual Studio Online for everything that's out there. you got to be invited to a project, things like that. Uh, GitHub's certainly quite a bit more open in that regard. So by default, if you don't have a paid account, everything's kind of public and out there for everybody to see. And you can go through, browse through users and gists and, and kind of the whole thing and, and see what's happening out there. And, and that's uh, hidden away behind the veil of uh, VSO sometimes. Uh, you know, one of the things I run into... Uh, quite a bit with uh, Visual Studio Online, especially with getting new folks up to speed on it, is they tend to think that it is just like TFS in the cloud because that's the way it's kind of sold. And uh, TFS does a lot of things these days that it didn't used to do in the past. Uh, So usually there's a big look of confusion when we say, yeah, let's spin up a TFS repo, but let's do it uh, as a Git-style repo. So... Uh, Git integration, but with Visual Studio Online and TFS and um, all the things that come into that. Uh, But your thing is certainly interesting, right? Because there is this uh, directory integration piece that is kind of hidden away on the front end as soon as we create everything. You tend to forget about it pretty quickly, especially if you you only have a few users in there and you're not centrally managing, you know, uh, more than one or two projects. Yeah, I think it's you know just kind of the the approach of it. You know, in the past, is if you're running TFS on prem, you probably had like an admin that oversaw all your different projects in TFS. Whereas Visual Studio, Microsoft oversees all of it. So when you go in and you say, "Hey, I want to create a new project," you're the owner of it, and there's no like centralized manager. Well, there can be, right? This is all about how things are spun up and how they're created, and it's all back to you. Uh, all right, hold on. Ready? Air quotes. Big G, governance kind of, ah! kind of stuff. Uh, so you can certainly have a centralized account and create multiple repositories within it or projects, right, in, in the uh, kind of verbiage of TFS and, and what's going on. So... Uh, you can have as many of those projects as you want within a given account and that kind of master, hey, I hold all the keys to the castle kind of thing and go on from there. And you're in this unique situation where you've had MSDN developers spinning things up on the side and maybe not necessarily realizing downstream impacts, right? And how do you get around those kind of things or... Uh, in your case, it sounds like you've got to retain history, which can be a little bit tough because now we've got to do like a TFS migration and uh, Microsoft really doesn't have out of the box tooling for VSO 
migrations. So we've got to go to a third-party vendor and find a tool that can let us migrate from either a VSO to VSO tenancy or VSO to on-premises, or, uh, you, you know, in some cases we go on-premises to VSO. So are you familiar with any uh, decent tools out there, Scott? Uh, we've used a couple of things internally, and I don't know the names of them off the top of my head. So we'd have to, uh, or at least I'd have to go back and look around and, and get some of those maybe for follow-up next week. Yeah, doing a little bit of real-time follow-up, there appears to be a cute little utility that's free um, out in the Visual Studio Gallery from uh, a little company known as Ops Hub. Uh, so apparently they make something that allows you to do some of this migration from uh, VSO to VSO. So folks are you know, running into uh, issues or, I mean, any, any migration always has pain. So, uh, you know... Apparently, you know, some folks have run into this and they're, they're realizing it and they're looking at it and going, hey, maybe we should uh, build tools to help and share them out to the community. So it's, it's nice of them, at least. Yeah, there's paid tools and uh, I, I definitely know about the paid ones and public ones, like you said, that are just kind of free or open source or whatever it may be. Uh, usually the deficiency is going to be in what things are able to migrate. So uh, it's kind of like a SharePoint migration when we typically look at the content that we need to migrate and the fidelity that we want behind it, right? Uh, so different tools are good at different things for like SharePoint migrations. Some are really good at workflow and some are really good at link correction, but usually the ones that are workflow aren't also good at link correction. So, you know, we, we, we've got to kind of pick one based on uh, our corpus and what we have. So you, you have to understand what's sitting out in your repos today and what you're going to need to come across. You know, if you don't need all your history and everything else, then it's pretty easy to just disconnect and push your code up to a new repo and say, ah, you, you know, we're good to go. It's when you want all of the backlogs and issues and versioning and everything else that was really the big benefit of having that version control in place that you're going to want to reach out and get a third-party vendor and figure out what what's going on with that so free is not necessarily better not always uh, i mean unless it's free beer free beer is always good yeah well most of the time huh yeah, so the, the Visual Studio Online, um, similar to any other cloud-based app, uh, just you know, beware. There are some little things here and there that probably at some point uh, you might run into from a pain point. So just be prepared to find a tool to help you out down the way. Um, speaking of tools, yeah, there's no good transition to this now that I think about it, but... Uh, uh, apparently, the Navy, U.S. Navy, re-upped with Microsoft for "quote unquote" more Windows XP support. I personally find this to be ridiculous, uh, mostly because Windows XP is, well, I mean, I guess it doesn't necessarily share the NT core that uh, we have with newer versions of Windows, like Windows Vista, Windows 7, Windows 8, Windows 8.1, future Windows 10. Uh, but it just, it seems mind-boggling that Windows XP would still be out there in the wild, well, not even in the wild, in the structured, you know, 
components of an organization to be used for everyday use. This is capitalism at its finest. <laughs> uh, you know, the, Microsoft has stated that support is ending, obviously, for Windows XP and thing, and on the server side for Windows Server 2003. Like, uh, you know, these things are all very fast approaching, and you have a few choices. You can be uh, you, you can be responsible in the sense that yes, we were you know, a little bit forward looking and we decided to upgrade or you can be responsible in the sense that uh, we realize we can't upgrade today. So we should probably still pay for support. Um, I, I, I mean, at this point, I don't really know what to say about some of this stuff. It's so old and so beaten and just so horrible that organization should really be finding a way off of it. And, you know, Microsoft kind of enables it by saying, uh, you know, if you want to give us money, then yeah, we'll, we'll give you security fixes or whatever else. But uh, they've, they've really got to get them off the train at some point. Um, and, you know, it's not just things like the United States Navy that's doing this. There's a lot of uh, financial institutions. Like if anybody ever uses an ATM, Chances are your ATM probably runs on Windows XP and a good portion of your financial institutions, banking stuff runs on Windows XP. So I know Joel Ward and I were uh, in the break room one day, probably a month or two ago, and the vending machine actually had uh, Windows CE on it. Ooh, that's special. Windows CE and... It was supposed to be a machine that could accept credit cards, but it unfortunately could not. It just kept saying something to the effect of, cannot find network. So, whoops. Yeah. You know, you have to love when you go to, like, the airport or the gas station and you see the terminal is just all blown up and blue screened and all the ugliness that ensues from that and kind of user confusion and everything else that just gets carried along the way. Um, again, I, I understand that everybody is going to make money and if somebody wants to pay some money for it, then, eh, you know, that's, that's their thing and what they can do. But, uh, I would wish that XP and tooling like that, or like server 2003 would really go away on the timelines that have been set by Microsoft rather than somebody coming out and saying, well, we can just, pay a couple more bucks you know when you know in the case of the navy what's what's another couple million here or there yeah i guess the thing to remember about that though is if you read the article it's not just xp it's office 2003 and off and exchange 2003 right and and so which and, and they're also wrong, probably the last, carrying over the server stuff as well right yeah but the last version of ie that xp works with is what like ie 8 yeah. So if I'm a Office 365 user, you are SOL. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so the 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 cloud's going to march forward, right? There's a certain amount of uh, you know you nailed it earlier. You called it technical debt, right? That these things are out there, and uh, unfortunately, uh, organizations 
you know, they, they, they can't seem to get out of the rut of having this old technology and figuring out what's going to happen and what's going to go on with it. So, you know, bottom line, uh, don't try and extend the life, <clears throat> life of uh, your old tech unless it's really, really important to you. I guess in this case, you know, I mean, change management admittedly is pretty hard. Like, you and I both know that users hate change for the most part. So, giving up the wonderful orb that we have in the down uh, bottom left corner of our screen from Windows XP, that's something that's hard, man. Yes, but when you've had 10 years to manage the change, we can say that there's deficiencies in other areas. Fair enough. So, in other news... Uh, so Microsoft went through this whole debacle of Windows 10 licensing. Any thoughts? Uh, it wasn't that much of a debacle as much as it was Microsoft released a blog post that said, you know what, here's what's going to happen with licensing for Windows 10, and here's what's going to happen with things like uh, Windows Insider Preview users, right? Like, like that was one of the main motivations. And a lot of the tech blogs picked this up and said, uh, with some loose interpretation, because Microsoft hadn't spelled it out extremely clearly, uh, that if you signed up for, if, if you happen to be on a non-genuine copy of Windows, and you went ahead and installed the Windows 10 preview today that you would automatically be upgraded to Windows 10 with a genuine retail license. And that was not actually the case. The case is you will only be upgraded if you have a genuine retail license. So if you're in the Insider program today and you were on Windows 8, 8.1, Windows 7, whatever it may be, and you had a genuine Windows license, you're going to be totally good. Windows 10, uh, you know, the, the production cut is going to come out, and it's going to GM, and you're going to have the gold master, and you're going to say, all right, I'm going to install this. It's going to activate, no problem. If you happen to be on a pirated copy, it's going to come back and say, eh, no, no such luck. So what about folks that uh, just had a device that they may have put together from parts? They, you know, put together an OEM. Um, what happens to them? I, I guess, you know, they they installed Windows 10 because they said, hey, this looks neat. They didn't actually have a license for Windows 7, Windows 8. Um, there was a lot of talk about, oh, as long as they associate their Microsoft account they'll still get a genuine license for Windows 10. But actually what it seems like is the group basically said, yeah, you'll be our basically our, our test users for Windows 10. So you'll continue to get uh, updates past Windows 10 RTM just because you're in that program. So the, there's a couple different streams. So one is if you were on a genuine copy of Windows prior to upgrade, then not a problem you are going to be entitled to a genuine copy of Windows 10, and it's going to figure and sort itself out and do all the things that it needs to do. If you are on a non-genuine copy of Windows, uh, you might have the option to stay in the preview program. They seem to be kind of back and forth on that a little bit still. Uh, but 
at the end of the day, you've got you've got, and you might need to go retail at some point. Keep that in mind. Um, so the part that you're talking about is they've publicly stated that after the RTM or GM, they kind of cut the gold master and stamp a bunch of discs and do that whole thing for Windows 10. Uh, they are going to continue the Windows Insider program, so you'll still have fast ring and slow ring and all that kind of stuff, and you can stay there. Uh, still a little bit of confusion, but at the end of the day, like there's really no way to cheat it, right? You're going to need a genuine Windows license, and it Ooh. is what it is. Ah, you'd be fine. Dishwasher's done. <laughs> Marker. <laughs> Uh, so one one of the interesting things that happened over the last week or that was announced, uh, I, uh, you just go ahead and crinkle that. <laughs> this is the joy of recording live. It's all going in, every last piece. Uh, so getting away from Microsoft a little bit, uh, there's the uh, EFF out there, and they talked a little bit about a free SSL service that they were going to release uh, a couple of months ago. You know, they stated that they kind of want to have this done by the end of the year and what's going on. That finally went live? Encrypt me? So it's letsencrypt.org and it's actually getting ready to go live. So it's going to have a couple different phases to it and uh, everybody's going to have the opportunity to either try it out or just really wait until it goes live. And I think if you are looking at using this for a, a, a real world or production scenario, you're really going to want to wait until it goes live. Uh, but if anybody's interested in testing it out for maybe for dev or something like that, uh, they actually plan on cutting their first certificates the week of July 27th, 2015. So uh, that's perfect. <clears throat> Uh, it's going to be a pretty tight pilot program, and they're going to actually issue those first certificates under their own route. So you're, you're going to have to deploy their route certificate and everything else, which makes it probably not ideal for many real-world scenarios. But just for testing, like that's great. Uh, so you know you're going to need uh, their route installed in your client software and on the server and everything else, just so the whole chain's intact and eh, whatever. Uh, but they have a really aggressive timeline for pushing out uh, the production use of this. So in September, they aim to have everything good to go. Uh, and then they have a agreement in place with one of the main routes. So they're going to have a cross-signature from Identrust uh, around GA for that. And they're sort of Certificates should just go ahead and validate automatically with pretty much everything, uh, which would be nice. That will work with Windows and Mac and everything else. So, uh, you know, I, I know quite a few times where uh, we run into these situations where we need SSL for something or another, and you look out there, and uh, sometimes you don't always want to pay for like a wild card from VeriSign or somebody else to get things up and going. Uh, so this will be a really nice alternative once it comes up and uh, is spun up and ready to go. So I guess, yeah, like you just said, uh, you know, if I'm trying to build out a 
build out like an ADFS farm or build out uh, SharePoint 2013 where I need an app domain. Um, this could come in really handy because I could just go in, provision a cert, and have zero cost. Yeah, the, the nice thing is, is this is public cert provisioning. So it's not, hey, I'm going to spin up an AD and certificate services and have this closed off thing where just for a POC or deployment, I need to deploy a bunch of certs around all my clients and get the roots in. It's all going to be out there and available for you. So if you think about something like in our world, like uh, Office 365 POCs, or like you said, like if we're doing like SharePoint extranets or things like that, it's going to be absolutely wonderful to go out there and actually secure these things the right way from the get-go. Uh, it just makes everything quite a bit easier down the line. Yeah, I guess uh, the Let's Encrypt uh, the group. So so it's the EFF. It's the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Yep. Uh, so they've spearheaded this, and uh, they started development last year, and they seem to feel that they're right on track. So if they release in September, uh, they actively started development in October, of 2014, so they will actually come in at like the 11, 11 month mark to push and put out there an entirely public, free SSL creation service, which is absolutely great. Like, uh, huge upside if uh, you're just doing those kind of like POC and development things. Or if you're just an organization that needs a valid SSL certificate and you can't afford, uh, you know, some of these other things from some of the other organizations that exist out there. Maybe your uh, current registrar charges a little too much money or you can't or don't really want to go someplace else to get it. Or you want to try and defeat uh, folks, you know, sniffing your traffic. So I know it might sound silly, but a lot of folks will go set up a wordpress.org or wordpress.com, excuse me, or I guess, yeah, it is .org, um, instance of WordPress somewhere on like one and one or GoDaddy or something like that, and or Azure for that instance, um, but they don't actually set up any sort of encryption. So when they actually got to log in so they can go post something, um, well, it's, you know, good and fine and dandy to have HGP, whack, whack, psconfig.com. Um, when you're going and, you know, posting actual content, you probably don't want folks to know what your password is, let alone be able to look at what your content is while you're posting it. So this hopefully will help out folks that, you know, run personal blogs on small, you know, uh, hosting providers as well be able to go in and actually encrypt their stuff so that it's not you and I both know that most people use the same password repeatedly for most things you and I probably don't because we use one password and we like to make certain that our you know content is uh, protected in some fashion but most folks you know they, they stick with a password and just go with it and then they go set up a WordPress instance and it's unencrypted and all of a sudden all their passwords just kind of get out there yeah it's mm, it, it it's a tough thing right and everybody's got to be on board this train if anybody paid attention to some of the announcements that Apple had at their developer conference last week they have 
a push to change some of the networking APIs to automatically default to SSL. So they're automatically going to fall over to HTTPS for pretty much everything by default, unless developers go in and say, uh, hey, we really need to be HTTP. So like a podcast client, so that whole standard and that specification really blows up when you use SSL and it's not suited for it. So those developers are going to have to go in and say, uh, yeah, not, not so much. Let's keep it to port 80 in the regular way. Uh, but by default, a lot of things are going to start heading over 443 first and then falling back to 80 if they possibly fail. But hopefully they won't. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it's kind of the way forward. SSL used to add perceived overhead, uh, whether that was kind of real or functional or drag things down or whatever else, you know. Uh, and if you look at a modern CPU and things like IS or Apache and what goes into them, adding an SSL cert doesn't drag your whole site down. Uh, usually it's the programming or something else behind it that's going to go ahead and do that for you on its own. Uh, so it, it's nice to see organizations like the EFF stepping up and saying, we, we recognize there is a need and a gap out there and be willing to fill it. Good folks over at the EFF. Hopefully, uh, hopefully this will go well and won't get uh, compromised like uh, what Komodo and those guys a while back. So, uh, yeah, the, the, there's been a bunch of things out there with cert leakage and everything else. And, uh, you know, everybody has problems with this stuff. So hopefully they are uh, good stewards and, and watch over things as they need to be watched over. Uh, I don't know if you saw, so you mentioned credentials and, and 1Password and uh, kind of last LastPass and, and things like that. So we had that LastPass leak a couple of weeks ago. And uh, one of the interesting things that I saw was Azure Active Directory and that product group, they released a new reporting feature against the premium SKU. And they can actually go out and report on leak leak credentials that exist out in the wild. So uh, security teams at Microsoft are actively monitoring for uh, what's going on out there. And they can actually tell you if you have a user ID within Azure Active Directory, uh, whether that email address, because really we're, we're talking UPN, so whether that email address matches up with something that might have been leaked and whether your users are potentially in trouble. But, <clears throat> Scott, correct me if I'm wrong, I've got to be paying for the Azure Active Directory premium SKU for that? That is part of premium. It's not part of premium light that comes with Office 365 or anything else. It's purely Azure AD premium. Mm. Yep. But you can get a free trial of it, and it is available through open licensing. Well then. Um, no, more, no more VL on that. It's been huh. that way for a bit now. Huh. So before we uh, dive whole hog into our favorites of Office 365 and Azure, uh, two quick things to cover. Um, one is the Oxford English Dictionary. Apparently it has adopted the terms for sexting, crowdfunding, and Twitterati. Uh, <clears throat> and additionally to that, there's a long list that includes words like netbook, kryptonite, 
uh, JavaScript or Java, I guess, as uh, Spence Harper would call it, um, as well as photobomb, photobomber, photobombing, retweet, retweeting, a uh, whole bunch of different, more technologically, you know, things. I love it when you read the dictionary to us. Well, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm almost tempted to tell you that they added photobomb as both a noun and a verb. Um, it, it seems, Is it an adjective, too? No, no adjective. But it, it seems funny to me, though, that they've got things like uh, netbook, because, correct me if I'm wrong, but Dell stopped selling netbooks like three years ago. Yeah, but Apple still says one today, so. Really? What's that? The MacBook. Ah, good put. The MacBook One? Yep, or mm. Chromebooks. Those are all netbooks. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> I think uh, the one term that I was surprised they don't have on here is Yammerati. Nobody uses Yammer. Eh, okay, fair enough. Um, so, a couple things in the Azure world. Uh, first up, the Azure PowerShell commandlets. They revved to 0.9.4 this week. Um, we mentioned it uh, last week or two weeks ago about how they're going to be splitting up the Azure service management, the Azure resource management into different PowerShell commandlets. That hasn't happened yet. So, I believe that's going to be happening in October. Is that right, Scott? So, the current timeline is to push those changes through in September, October. They are currently soliciting community feedback. So, if anyone out there actually leverages the Azure PowerShell commandlets, and if you listen to this, you probably do. Uh, Your feedback would be greatly appreciated in driving the future direction of how this split happens. So as it stands today, the current proposal is anything that is ASM will be renamed. Uh, So there's a bunch of things. So like new Azure VM, right? Awesome commandlet, creates a new VM for you. And in ASM land... There is a new Azure VM. And in Armland, there is this thing called new Azure VM. Spelled exactly the same and camel case and the whole thing. It's it's got it all. And what's gonna happen if things go through the way they're proposed today is new Azure VM for ASM will be renamed to new ASM VM or something similar, maybe new Azure ASM VM, something like that. Uh, but it'll probably have ASM in the name. And your ARM commandlets will continue to be new Azure VM. So that could have some big downstream impacts if you've been building solutions on Azure, particularly with PowerShell over the last couple of years, uh, because you have a big investment in ASM at this point, and maybe ARM as well, because that's been sitting around for a little bit as well. And you've probably been handling that switch between modes and contexts and everything with some custom logic or tooling within your modules or scripts, and it's all going to change, and it's all going to need to be rewritten. So there, there's really no good way around this, but uh, they are the, the, the group that handles the Azure PowerShell commandlets. They are soliciting feedback and saying, hey... Let's reach out to the community and see what they have based on customers and everything else. And there's probably a group of like 10, 15 folks that are all contributing to that conversation. But I'd be willing to 
bet that there's more than 10 or 15 people that are actually playing around with these commandlets and doing everything. Uh, so like you said, uh, 0.9.4 came out, and that had some other things. They've started to add uh, deprecation warnings. So we, you have a deprecation warning as of 0.9.3 for uh, switch Azure mode and, and kind of what's going on and how that's going to go away. Uh, so in Azure Compute, you've got some new deprecations around things like new Azure VM and how we like name VMs and pass those commandlets in and get things going. Uh, they also deprecated the name parameter in things like set Azure VM source image. Uh, so now they want you to go over and use things like the publisher, the offer, SKU version, whatever, wherever it actually came from. Like, don't just give it a funny name and uh, let it be off and running. And uh, they, they had some fixes out there for some other things, whether that was across uh, some of the new things that GA'd, like Key Vault. So Key Vault went out and, and GA'd. Uh, there were some new Azure Resource Manager commandlets and some, uh, some new SQL database commandlets for handling backups and things like that. So definitely some interesting things out there for people to chew on and go play with. Yeah, I think uh, the one that caught my attention probably the most is what you just mentioned about Key Vault. Uh, a lot of folks tend to think, you know, okay, great, uh, we've got the cloud. Um, how do we protect our data? How do we ensure we own it, that we're the only ones that actually have access to it? Well, you encrypt it. Um, so Azure Key Vault is, you know, kind of that, uh, that capability that's out there. It's a cloud-based uh, hardware security module that essentially you're working against. So if you've got a laptop, you've got a TPM, a trusted platform module, um, this in the very same way, it's, you know, it's going in, it's encrypting your data against a piece of hardware, but you've got a key that goes along with it. You've got access to that key, you store that key, uh, you own that key. It's pretty nifty they're able to actually provide this capability these days. Yep, so AWS has a similar offering, and there's a bunch of third-party vendors that offer, uh, again, very similar things, like you said. So these kind of uh, HSMs that exist either on-premises or in the cloud or uh, here and there, anything in the middle. Uh, one of the perceived deficiencies with Azure, particularly when it comes to storage from what I've seen is they don't have built-in encryption mechanisms today. So one of the things on the roadmap is to update the storage libraries and uh, get developers away from writing their own encryption algorithms and everything else and actually going ahead and just being able to leverage native, uh, native functionality to Azure for some of that stuff, which is Again, something that's out there for uh, AWS, but doesn't exist for Azure, but it's on the roadmap and it's going to be coming down and uh, that'll allow for uh, client encryption and some other things when you're just doing straight storage. If you're doing things like IaaS and VMs and everything else, there are third parties that you can go to uh, through the marketplace or privately and say, hey, we'd love to purchase your services. And they allow you to do things like encrypt VHDs 
on the fly, or you can always use BitLocker or some other things. Eh, BitLocker, you know, when compared to some of the other encryption stuff, might not be the preferable solution. So <clears throat> you have options, but you kind of got to poke and prod and, and look around and see what's out there. True, but I think I thought the guidance on things like BitLocker was that you could only encrypt uh, your data drives. You couldn't encrypt your uh, your OS drive. Correct. Yeah. Uh, so, but your OS drive uh, should pretty much be one of those cattle kind of things. So, if you're doing IaaS, you should really be able to blow it away and rebuild it. So, we can't always do that with things like SharePoint because it's not the greatest citizen. And yeah, it always installs stuff to the system drive and it does what it does. You know, we're still stuck with web server extensions and all those kind of things. Uh, there is a third party offering that lets you encrypt your entire, all your drives, uh, both your OS and your data drives in Azure, uh, especially when you're in IaaS, but it's an added cost and some other things. So it's not built into the platform. Uh, and you, you, you've got to kind of handle that service and, and that relationship yourself. Uh, good old relationships. It's kind of like, uh, you know, the relationship between a user identity and a cloud identity. I don't know what you're talking about. Those are totally the same. Oh, no, wait, they're not. Yeah. So this week also Azure Active Directory Connect, uh, finally went GA. So this had gone through a couple different previews. Uh, I actually used it in a presentation last year at, uh, SP Live 360, um, which was kind of funny because most people were like, why aren't you using Dersync? And I was like, because Dersync sucks. Um, and then they were like, why aren't you using AD Sync? And I said, because that's old tooling. I'm going to use the preview stuff. Come on. Um, so the preview finally went GA. Uh, what it allows you to do is, you know, sync user identities from your on-prem to your cloud, but it allows for multi-forest, allows for... Uh, changing your anchor point, it allows for a lot of things that you used to have to go into like FIM, uh, Forefront Identity Manager, to go out and do. Uh, so hopefully, you know, AD Connect will start solving some of these problems we ran into, uh, partly because they've tried to make it as user-friendly as possible, but partly because I think they really are realizing for adoption of cloud-based services, the tooling really needs to work. Yeah, so... AD, AAD Connect went out on, it hit the download center on June 9th, or at least that's what Google says when you go, or, I'm sorry, Bing, when, when you go out and look at the page and everything else, and they actually pulled the download and mm, it just wasn't there, you know, it was one of those nice download center pages that blows up, so... Uh, I was working with somebody on this last week and they had gone out and spun up a new AD and they were still presented with the legacy Dersync tooling. So AD Sync was a little bit better than Dersync in some scenarios and, and particularly when you're looking for right back and some other things. So it, it worked a little bit better and it did what it did. Uh, but now that AD Connect is out, that brings a host of other things along with it. So you get the AD Connect tooling, which is, like you said, greatly simplified, uh, quite a bit easier to use, uh, especially when you look at things like uh, the write-back support 
that's totally there, ready to go. Uh, one of the things that I actually like is in Dersync land, I don't know if you ever went through this and did a demo, but you would spin up a new Azure Active Directory tenant and you'd say, mm, all right, we're going to configure directory contoso.com and let it go. And it would automatically sync all your user identities across. So usually you had to do this weird thing where you'd say, you know what, I'm done with the config wizard. No, I don't want to sync now. I got to go into FIM and I got to click a bunch of checkboxes and change a bunch of things and uh, move and massage and push things around. And you don't have to do that with tooling like AD Connect. It's actually part of the config wizard. It says, hey, do you want to do this for like a pilot or a POC? Uh, great. Let's just constrain uh synchronized identities to specific specific OUs or specific groups uh, that might exist. Uh, it has the ability to provision ADFS farms for you. And so you can say, I would like these ADFS federation servers and federation proxies to be provisioned. And as long as the account you're installing with has the ability to do it and it's all hooked up to a domain, it can go out and do uh, all of that worked for you as well. So it definitely has uh, some niceties to it. The rules engine is great uh, and has a bunch of options and quite a bit of power that you just didn't... It's not that you didn't have to go into FIM, but that you probably shouldn't have gone into FIM for in the past because there was potential to break things, and now it's presented in a uh, much more clear manner. So the one thing that uh, probably blew up in my face, the two things that blew up in my face, um, when I was using the AD Connect preview back when it was, you know, very, I won't say immature, but it was kind of like the, uh, what was it, the Cheez-Its, uh, Cheez-It pieces being immature with the doctors. Um, when I used it, I was pretty surprised that it didn't yell at me right off the bat when I said, hey, use right, right back. Um, but only after it had actually run through the entirety of its configuration, it came back and said, Meh, I'm not going to let you use uh, right back. And it didn't actually give an error or a reason why, but obviously it's because you don't have Azure Active Directory. Uh, premium. If you have Azure Active Directory, you just don't have the premium SKU, which allows for right back to your on-prem AD. Um, the other thing that was kind of quirky about it that I don't think they've totally worked out still um, is more along the lines of when you're going through and uh, when you forget to inadvertently, um, or it's not inadvertent, I guess, but you forget to actually go in and tell it, hey, uh, Azure Active Directory, you need to be able to allow yourself to be synced. Um, so for me, that blew up in front of me in front of a group of 25 folks. And I went, ah, crud, we're at hour seven of this workshop. How can this be happening? Um, and sure enough, you know, I'd forgotten to go to the uh, Azure page that talks about allowing Azure Active Directory synchronization to occur. Um, so after that, it was, you know, flip switch, go back to AAD Connect and press go. And it... Uh, Went, used all the stored parameters I'd given it, and synchronized identities pretty quick. So I think the tooling is getting better, but, you know, there's still those idiot-proof cases for people like me where sometimes, you know, it just needs perhaps some tool tips, some little videos, I don't know, something. Yeah, so for the latter situation there where... Pebcac? Yeah, uh, 
hubcat, right? It's, it's, it's a big button that's on the form in both, well, arguably the button is bigger in Azure AD than it is over in Office 365 land, where sure. you were probably doing the demo where it's actually a link and it's not a button and uh, consistency of UI and, and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, that one's kind of, you've got to know it up front. Uh, for all the right back stuff, uh, there are certain components that can be written back as part of Office 365. And depending on your SKU in Office 365, you kind of get Azure Active Directory Premium Lite. You get some of the features, like you can change the logos on the login page. I can have users do password resets. You can have cloud-only users do password resets. You can't have on-prem users because there's actually no write-back for... Yeah, but that's... Uh, all details, things. details, so, details. Uh, so for people like you, Dan, who like to have tool tips and everything else along the way... Uh, they actually have added all that in. It's just in the config wizard. It says, hey, here's a bunch of optional features. Do you want to enable a hybrid deployment? And there's a little question mark. And you can click that and bring up a tool tip. Do you want to enable things like password sync, password write back? Uh, a couple of other things that can write back in those premium SKUs. Uh, user write back. So that's a great one. Let's sure. go ahead and create my user in the cloud and then write them back to on-premises. Uh, group right back, which is still probably a misnomer because the groups really were talking like things like Office 365 groups, and they don't actually get written back as groups. They get written back as distribution lists because, eh, you know, what the hell? In Office 365 land, a distribution group is a security group, except when it's not because it's still a distribution group, and it's all really confusing. But It's a special snowflake. Yes, someday they are going to fix all of those things, I'm sure. And and they're going to get it all set up. Um, one of the other things that they brought with that kind of optional features is the device write back. So we have the ability to do things like workplace join in Azure AD. So if you do workplace join and you have Azure AD, it might be nice to see those devices in your on-premises systems for something else maybe you want to do. Uh, device claims, or who knows what. For some reason, you want those devices in your on-premises directory. Uh, you can actually go ahead and do those right backs and get things back to where they need to be. So you talk about the the workplace join. Um, I was actually toying around with this this past week. I built out a Windows 10 VM. And if you go into your Azure Active Directory, there's actually a button in there that allows you to do device join. Yes. Yeah, but it, it's not the workplace join. It's a device join. Um, so I took my Windows 10 box that I just built and joined it to my Azure Active Directory. And it was pretty wild because from there on out, it was passing credentials back and forth for Exchange and for SharePoint like nobody's business, just like I was on-prem doing this with an on-prem SharePoint system with Kerberos. Yes. The device join is workplace join. And it's kind of like they, they share the same kind of thing. And uh, what you're seeing is verbiage that's coming across because really device join is targeted as, hey, let's get Intune users because most people that use Office 365 and Intune still don't know that they have Azure AD running everything in the background and that it's the big driver. 
uh, let's bring them all into the fold and, and get them over. So we've got Office 365 MDM, which is GA and a bunch of other things. So let's bring these workplace joined or device joined 1.0 devices and start to get them with the ability to write back and do conditional access and all those other kind of things. So easy Tim Farrow could do it. Yes, it, it is a button and you click it and you go, yep, Tim Farrow did it. Uh, it does require the Azure AD premium SKU. So you're back into that whole, hey, if we're going to go to prod with this, we need to acquire licensing, whether that's through uh, VL or open or whatever it may be, or you can do the trial thing and get up and running with it. Huh. I don't remember it actually requiring me to have a license, but... So if you're coming from Office 365, nope. you get Office 365, you get the E3, the MDMs. If you're pure Azure AD... You've got to be in premium, so you probably had a trial activated or something. Huh. I'll have to go back and check that. We'll, uh, we'll have it follow-up for next week. Yep. We'll do it. Hmm. Uh, so let's see. So one of the other really cool things, so blah, 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 you go ahead and enable all this stuff, and you do your sync and everything else. Uh, one of the other th capabilities that's come along with this uh, is the GA of uh, Azure AD Connect Health or AD Connect Health. So there's a bunch of customers that use Azure AD, right? Because pretty much everything in Office 365 is driven out of it. And there are things that go into that. So maybe you don't just use a straight directory, maybe you use ADFS or some other thing, uh, some other identity provider that's out there. So AD Connect Health actually provides you some alerting around that. And again, it's a feature of Azure AD Premium. Uh, it can go ahead and uh, monitor your ADFS servers. So you can get alerts based on events, configuration information, uh, any kind of performance data that you might have sitting out there. Uh, it can go ahead and be surfaced just in this report. Uh, you can actually see graphs of login activity. So because technically all your logins are being captured on-premises by your ADFS servers or your ADFS proxies, uh, you can actually go ahead and surface that information out in the cloud, which is kind of cool. Uh, and you can also do some uh, KPIs around things like uh, just what servers you have sitting out there, if there's... Uh, any kind of heuristics you want to run around uh, things like token requests or uh, even all the way down to what's going on on, the, on your ADFS infrastructure themselves, like processor, memories, latency, anything like that. So pretty much what you're telling me is Azure Active Directory Premium is really something I should consider buying instead of just relying on my admins to be able to know how to watch for problems to arise on their own. Probably. There, there's some really compelling stuff in there uh, that a lot of organizations should probably take a look at, take a step back and say, uh, you know, does this fit in the budget? And, uh, you know, for anybody that's sitting down and thinking about new implementations, uh, they should probably be building that pricing in because there are some really compelling features in there. The, uh, 
the, the the right back stuff is absolutely phenomenal, and the reporting has come just leaps and bounds over the last couple of months. Like if you look at something like the leaked credential reporting, that's hugely beneficial to a lot of organizations. But if my Office 365 users uh, were also protected by admins that cared, um, perhaps that might help as well. I, I noticed uh, Microsoft released this uh, ability for quote-unquote improved communication tools to stay better connected and informed. Um, maybe that'll help a little bit as well. So you've got Azure Active Directory Premium, giving you all these extra bits and pieces for things like you said, you know, uh, passwords or accounts that have been infiltrated in some way, shape, or form, being able to detect those. But also for the administrator, being able to keep the users kind of in the know, hey, there's a service outage, or hey, SharePoint's got maintenance, or Exchange has got maintenance, getting those things like lifted to them instead of having them to go through and pick up their browser and throw it across the room when they log into the portal at office.com and realize, holy smokes, everything in my admin dashboard is red. So we're, we're talking about two different services, right? Sure. So, so Azure AD is part of Azure. And yes, you have Office 365, but ultimately if you do AD Premium, you're in the Azure SKUs and, and doing things over there. So service alerting for Office 365 is purely around the Office 365 services. Uh, so they've had a couple of improvements on that side, uh, particularly around kind of visibility of what's going on. So one of the really nice things they've added is in the past, if you went to the service management dashboards and said, hey, what's going on? It would actually show you service status across everything which might not be that helpful if the only thing you subscribe to is SPO, or maybe you will only subscribe to Exchange Online. Uh, you, you really don't care about the other services and what's going on. So uh, now they're going to switch to this model where they only show you things which you are actually subscribed for within your tenancies. So that's kind of nice. Uh, the other thing that they added, uh, would, you kind of hinted to, was proactive alerting. So across all of the mobile apps that exist today for uh, Windows Phone, iOS, and Android, the Office 365 admin apps, uh, you're going to be able to pretty much automatically just get push notifications for service outages or things that are going on. Which is interesting that they're using it through their apps. So I guess, you know, for folks that aren't using Office 365 admin... Uh, unlike their iOS or Android device, um, they're not going to see those notifications. But if they are, then they'll see those notifications. So the, what's the other option? So, so the other option <laughs> Re is realistically, it, like, like, like Microsoft's going to say, hey, we could send you an email alert, but if all your emails hosted in Exchange Online and Exchange Online's down, they're not going to have a great way to get you a notification, right? So uh, it, the mobile notifications fills a gap. So, yeah, they're limited to SMS, which seems to be dying, thanks to WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, iMessage, Google Talk, all that jazz. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the, the apps themselves, getting those notifications, hopefully folks realize they need to log into the app so that it actually realizes, oh, I'm Scott Hogue and I'm a part of this 
tenant instead of just sending you random you know messages that may or may not actually affect your uh, your infrastructure. Right. So so that's the overall goal of these things is to align and say, hey, you're only subscribed to certain services. So we only want to show those things to you in the dashboard. We only want to alert you about those things, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, I'm excited to see this come out. I may actually go download the apps. Um, so I already have the one on iOS, and it absolutely it sent me alert when there was a SharePoint Online thing happening in one of my Australian tenancies. Huh. Crazy. Yep. Automatic. It's already there. Even works down under. It's out, about, and ready to go. Awesome.